Welcome to Wealth Science. I'm your host, Jesse Fuchsia, Army Ranger, real estate investor, and income enthusiast. On this show, we uncover the keys to attaining financial freedom. There are so many people listening right now who are stuck in that day-to-day, nine-to-five rat race. Luckily, it's only temporary. Each week, we bring on guests that help us discover the steps to build financial freedom, passive income, and generational wealth, so we can live the life we were born to live. Money is freedom. Let's get to the show. Welcome back to another episode of Wealth Science. I'm your host, Jesse Fuchsia, and today's guest is Emmy Sobieski. Emmy has 25 years experience as an institutional money manager including co-managing the number one fund in the world in 1999 and working at a top hedge fund the following year. She now helps high-performing students from non-target schools break into investment banking and Wall Street. Her company today is called Breaking Into IB. Wealth Science, I bring you the goddess of financial education, Emmy Sobieski. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, I think you did a terrific background on me. One thing that I would add is that in the first half of my career for 25 years, I managed money. And then I moved into, I got became so obsessed with blockchain and AI that I moved into co-founding and working with a couple of, working with a couple companies in tech. And I've realized, and then also doing some angel investing. And in that process, I realized that I really had done myself a disservice. I broke into Wall Street and and I helped other students break into Wall Street, but I failed to realize that you need to off-ramp onto a very high leverage career. And so that's, I'm actually writing a book called Real Wealth that's gonna come out and I'm sure the title will change. But it's about this idea that investment banking, it's great to break into investment banking, and it's important to understand why. And so that's my real focus is to help students from non-target schools break into investment banking as a launching pad for, for building generational wealth. Yeah, I mean your score your story is absolutely amazing. And I, I was telling you before we got started, I've read, I want to say every blog that you've ever written, just because of how incredible your story is. The way you write is also amazing, by the way, as well. Thank um, you. The content that you provide us is, is so amazing. You know, for the people who don't know as much about you, I mean, could you kind of maybe even take us back to the beginning and how this story has really progressed to what it is today? Yeah, so it really depends how far back you want to go. But in terms of my investing progress, when I was, when I was, I had saved up money from gifts and um, working, et cetera. So that by the time I was 18, I had $1,800 and, or sorry, 16 years old, I had $1,800. And um, my dad said, now you're 16, you should start investing in the stock market. And he kind of gave me four different stocks and one of them was United Artists. And he said, look, they're going to start selling more than popcorn. They're going to start selling candy and all the things that they sell today. But you know, I'm that old. (laughs) (laughs) The movie theaters only sold popcorn back when I was a kid. And so I thought, wow, that's going to go great because people loved sugar and candy. So I invested in them and then somebody bought a different company, bought them out, maybe three, four, six months later for four times what I invested in. And I was like, wow, that was, that was awesome. And so then my dad gave me four other stocks. I picked another one that quadrupled and then he gave me four other stocks and I picked one that went up 10 X. By the time I was a sophomore in college, I had $320,000. Um, and <laughs> I was like, this is great. <laughs> this investing thing is great. And four years, four or five years later, I had lost it all. My mother had my mother had died and I had kind of gotten lazy and I was graduating from college and I became a horse trainer. Um, so, you know, the background of that is that I had no I had no internships in college because I was working as a horse trainer. I had an internship for a moment, but it was $8 an hour 
And as a horse trainer, I was making $40 an hour. So I was like, why not ride outside and, you know, enjoy life and be in the sun for five times as much money? Um, But that meant that when I graduated college, I had no real skills except being a horse trainer. And so I went and tried to interview for jobs and got nothing. And and um, and I worked as a horse trainer. I worked as a asbestos litigation paralegal. I mean, just all kinds of crazy things. And meanwhile, I had kind of I'd kind of just outsourced the managing of my of my money to my dad. And he was happy enough to do it. But his wife had just died. So he's got really obsessed with this company called Alliance Pharmaceutical that had um it was going to make a blood substitute where you didn't need a blood type. It was just like a a generic blood substitute and you can, and it would carry oxygen and you could inject it in somebody's veins. And imagine that not needing, I mean, you know, for any transfusion, not needing to blood type, it would have been amazing. And, but we don't really know anything about biotech. We'd been investing in movie theaters and tech companies. So he just, the more that stock went down, the more he invested more of my money. He put it on a margin. He put my entire inheritance from my mom in there. And so when I went to grad school, so, so that's, you know, so that's just like going down, down, down. Then my horse trainer, who was also kind of my life guide said to me, look, Emmy, you're in your mid twenties. You're doing these random jobs, like asbestos litigation, paralegal and horse trainer, whatever. And he, and at the time I was a horse trainer. And he said, I just think you have too much intellect to just be a horse trainer. And he goes, if you go to graduate school, face all your opportunities and still choose to be a horse trainer, then I will support you, but you can't just default to horse trainer. So he said, and he doesn't, he's not, you know, he's old and German. So he, he's not too hip with kind of when you're supposed to apply. And it was just very lucky. So he said, the next time I come down here in six weeks, I want you, I want to know what grad school you've applied to. And thank God it was right in the middle of the application time. So I was able to do what he said. And I get to grad school and that biotech crash had happened. We're at the, we're at the low of the, and actually it was during a recession and so my 320,000 plus the 200,000 I inherited from my mother, so 520,000 was now worth negative $30,000. And I had a horse that was worth, happened to be worth $30,000. So I sold the horse and I went to the head of the brokerage firm and I said, look, I know you usually um, invest, like I know you usually only let people have a margin of 30% but that would wipe me out. And I don't want to just pay the 30,000 to pay off. Would you let me operate at a 50% margin? Cause I know the exchanges allow that. And it happened that the head of the brokerage firm was a Stanford fraternity brother of my dad's and best friend. So I'm sure to him, $60,000, I think his house was worth 80 million. So wow. I think he was like 60,000, sure. whatever. He was like, <laughs> you know, fine. It's like, you know, my, the daughter, my friend, whatever. Um, and so that became my number one goal was to get that thing back up. And so the first six months when I was at USC for my MBA, um, I, I basically just traded and it happened to be at the time I was really good at these small cap tech stocks and I was taking financial statement analysis and using the information, you know, focusing on stocks I might be interested in anyway, um, and then using that information to trade. And it happened to be, I entered grad school in 1992, which was the end of the recession. And so the small cap stocks get hit the most in a recession because people worry that they won't survive it. And so then they bounce up the most coming out of a recession. And so I had this huge tailwind. I was investing in these stocks and I took the effectively 60,000, 30,000 debt, 30,000 equity, turned it into 120,000. So doubled it in six months, paid back the the 30 and had 90,000 to work with. And my now best friend who was also at grad school with me said, you know, there's people that would pay you to do that. (laughs) And I had come into grad school, not even thinking about what I would do. I just like my horse trainer told me I got to go to grad school. Um, And so I was like, wow, you're kidding. This is like playing Pac-Man. This is so much fun. And so that was really, 
at the age of, oh gosh, I think it was so 94. Um, so yeah, at the age of 25, 26 is when I realized I wanted to break into Wall Street. So for anybody that's worried, like it's too late or I, I did everything wrong. I did everything wrong. I, 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 in fact, I interviewed so poorly for internships of my summer year in the MBA that I ended up just going to Europe with two cute guys that were a year ahead of me in the MBA. And I used my tax refund to pay for the trip to Europe. So I had no internship in my MBA, no internship in my undergrad, you know, terrible work. I mean, horse training and asbestos litigation paralegal. And I still made it. And I made it through stock pitching. So that's, that's my message to every, that's kind of my crazy journey and why I'm so obsessed with helping the students that want to be investment bankers and break in, um, figure out how to do that. Yeah, that beginning of this story, I knew exactly where it was going and curving. And I was like, this is amazing. But to hear it from you and just, I suppose, like reading it from your blog is, is amazing. Uh, before we jump into the investment banking piece and all the amazing, incredible things that you do for students out there, Emmy, I'm just curious, like I'm dying to ask you this question, like at the age of 25, 26, I mean, it wasn't what, six or seven years later, will you climb the ladder to co-manage the number one fund in the world in 1999. I mean, that time period seems extremely short. I guess, how did you yeah. make that transition to do it that? Was, yeah, it was actually five years. Okay. It was, well, it was, well it, it, you're right as well, because um, the second half of my, my second year at my MBA, uh, my professors that I was working for as a research associate, they, Mike Milken, they had worked with him on a project and Mike Milken contacted them. Um, he was a junk bond king in 19, you know, and went to jail. At, we, we like to call it camp, <laughs> um, but, uh, and we like to call his junk bonds high yield, high yield securities. Um, but, uh, but he, so he reached out to them and said, hey, I need an analyst. Do you have anybody? And they sent me over and I interviewed so poorly that he called them back and said, do you have anybody else? <laughs> and, and they said, no, you don't realize how smart she is. She's our only recommendation. And, um, and I had gotten A pluses in both of these professors classes as well as working for them as a research assistant. And, um, and so I started working for Mike Milk in January of the final year of my MBA. Um, and then, and then, and it really enjoyed that. And at some point, so at some point um, after I graduated, my best friend, Trish, the one that said, you know, you could do this for money. She, um, she got a job at farmer's insurance and then they had an opening in the bond department. And she's like, I think we could tweak your resume to still be honest, but to be compelling um, to get you a job in the bond department at Farmers Insurance. And she said, I really think you should not be working for Mike Milk. And, and there were some stories that won't, you know, make it into the public realm, but she, she had a great point. And I, I still am very, very grateful to Milk and he taught me so much as well. And so, um, so yeah, so I got a job in the bond department. And funny thing was I had interviewed and networked with a lot of friends of my dad, friends of friends when I was, when I was in my MBA saying, look, I want to work at uh, Provident Investment Council, which Provident, by the way, said, we already have a woman portfolio manager. The only women we're hiring now is secretaries. And, you know, interestingly, they did not make it through the 2008 crisis. And I really believe diversity is important. And if you're not hiring from 50% of the workforce, you're going to lose. And they lost. So that was kind of interesting. And, and then I was talking to more people that were from my dad. And one guy worked at Roger Engelman and Associates, which was a money manager. And he said, look, Emmy, your, your background's not, your, your background's not Harvard, your background's not this. And this is what I teach the students too. He said, look, go somewhere that pays less and has high turnover because then you will, you will move up at the ladder so much faster. And the only thing you need to do is get a three-year track record against the market because it doesn't matter where you're working. If you are competing against the market, you're competing against the market on an even field. 
And so he said, the faster you can get that three-year track record, you can go anywhere you want if you've got a great track record. And he was so right. It was the best advice. So then I was at Farmers Insurance and there's all this turnover. And so I think it was six, seven months. By the way, I walked right in and I was managing a billion dollar bond portfolio, which I mean, incredible, right? Yeah. No background, no experience. And they, they, you work with them. They kind of teach you, but you just kind of learn it on your own. It was incredible, the amount of trust. And I had a great boss. I loved him. And, um, and actually when I came into farmers, again, I didn't interview very well. And so the head of the bond department was like, eh, I don't know. <laughs> she kind of scares me a little bit. I, I don't know. And but I had also interviewed with the head of the equity department, and they were and and so the head of the equity department put all this FOMO on the bond guy because the bond guy was very like everything has its place and every and we just we buy the bonds and then the bonds are in the interest. We don't sell the bonds. We just buy the bonds and then more premiums come in. We buy more bonds. Like that was what we're supposed to be doing. And, um, and I think he had a bad, bad sense of what might happen if he hired me. But the equity guy said, if you don't hire her, I will. He's like, she, she has really got it. And so then, then of course the bond guy had FOMO and he hired me and lived to regret it because what I ended up doing was found that, that there's all these inefficiencies where you can buy five B bonds, which means that S and P has a junk rating on the bond and Moody's has an investment grade rating. And if they disagree, you're either both are going to go to junk or both are going to go to investment grade. And if you can do that in an industry where the cycle is improving, then you know that it's going to investment grade, but people can't, you know, funds are prohibited from investing in junk bonds. Some of them are. And so you just get this huge step up in valuation as soon as either S&P or Moody upgrades it so that it's, so that it's a 6B, that, so that it's investment grade across the board. So I would be like buying these five Bs, selling them as six Bs, buying more five Bs. My boss is like, we buy the bonds, hold the bonds. I'm like, I'm like, no, 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 but look, I just made a million dollars. He's like, we buy the bonds. We sell. So it was, it was always, it was always like that. And very soon, um, and I, I, so then I was like, okay, I want to get over to equities. So I talked to another woman in equities and I was covering pulp and paper in bonds and investing in pulp and paper bonds. And she was covering pulp and paper in equities. And I said, hey, if I write a big research report on where the cycle is, the whole industry cover all the companies, will you edit it? And then we can co-publish it together and basically present it together. And she was like, yeah, but it became very obvious to everybody that I had written the report. And so I got to present it in front of the equity group. And then later she knew about my talent. And so she said, hey, I saw the energy analysts on the Bloomberg terminal because we didn't have internet back then. That's how old I am. We didn't, we didn't have the World Wide Web. Netscape hadn't come out yet. This was uh, 95. And so um, she said, I noticed he's on the Bloomberg terminal looking for a job. And she said, I think you should pick up energy in the bond sector so that when he leaves, you can say, I have energy experience and try to get that equity job. And uh, so I thought that was a great advice. So I did that. And, and then he left and I said, I want to cover, I want to cover energy, but I, I know I just got hired. So it's only like seven months at this point. I know I just got hired. So I'll do bonds as well. And I said, I have so much energy. I can work, you know, don't worry. And so they both bosses agreed. Now I had two bosses. And then there was a big upheaval and half the equity division left, including the CIO. And at that point, I went to the new CIO and I said, I want tech. And I, you know, and I, like, I saw that stuff happening. So I picked up tech and bonds really quick to say I have experience in tech. So I said, I want tech. And he was installing like 400 TV channels and watching old movies all day. And I'm thinking, and I went in and he's like, no, 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 you're not getting it. 
And I was like, well, I think, I don't think he cares about stocks. This is a chief investment officer, but he doesn't seem to care about investing. So I'm like, what does he care about? So I started talking to him about what's going on. His wife wasn't willing to leave with the kids until the end of the year. So nobody was living with him. His kids weren't getting into the high schools that he wanted. I was told that. I'm like, I know the principal of a high school. I'm going to get these kids, you know, not illegally or anything, but I'm going to get them moved up so that they, so that if their grades are good enough, they'll be kind of first on the list type of a thing. So I had my high school principal, my old principal, who's a dear friend of mine, call up the principals of each of these schools that the kids wanted to get into. And each of the kids got into the school that they wanted. And I think a week later, I was announced as the tech analyst. <laughs> and, and then the Asia analyst left. And I thought, you know what? It's great to be covering Asia and talk to all the Asia analysts if I'm doing tech because I can track everything that's getting put into these PCs and therefore know how the PC cycle's doing, know how Intel's doing, all this stuff. So I asked to have that and they said, sure. So they finally got around to hiring an, an energy analyst. And the energy analyst comes in and he says, what in the world is the most junior person here doing running 30% of our equities and a billion dollar bond portfolio? <laughs> it finally they caught said, up. They yeah. said, we never noticed. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, like they were like, wait, you have a great point. And so at that point, um, they hired somebody else for my bond thing. I focused on tech. But I had got a really early start to build a to build the track record. You know, I had a track record in bonds, but that was too short to really use. But my tech track record started in January of 1996. And so I had nearly a three year track record by the time that, uh, you know, that it was time to move. And that was a funny story, too, because um, I, I would work weekends. And I and in insurance, when you're an insurance company, that the people that are the investing people are like low class. The high class people are the life insurance salespeople because that that's where all the profits come from. And you know the 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 investment people are just supposed to like help with invest the premium. Um, and so I was in there working on the weekends, and the space planning people are coming in, and they're measuring out our entire floor. And I was, I said, hmm, because we're all, we're all in cubicles because that's how they value us, which is, which is fine. I actually like cubicles. So I said, so what are you guys measuring for? And they said, we're, we're turning the entire floor into offices. <laughs> I thought, well, they're not doing that for us. <laughs> so <laughs> clearly we're getting sold. <laughs> and so I reached out to some people said, Hey, you know, can I, you know, what, what, do you know of any roles or whatever? And within, and then I got introduced through one of the one of the salespeople that worked with me to Nicholas Applegate. And it turned out, also through talking to other salespeople, it turned out that they had had a they had a four billion dollar mid cap fund, and it had underperformed for years, but still gained assets because the person running it was just a great salesperson, but he had eventually, he had gotten fired. They hired a new guy and like, they need, they need this transition to happen ASAP, right? They fired a guy, they hired a guy. And that guy said, I'm not coming without a tech analyst. He said, I'm not even going to start. I'm like, I'm not doing it. And so they had a gun to their head to get a tech analyst ASAP. And so that enabled me to negotiate a little bit better pay. And I noticed that everybody there spent all their time on their computers and they were hiring me saying, we want a fundamental analyst, but I was concerned that, that they think fundamental analyst is like at your computer. And I wanted to be on the road visiting companies. And so I actually put that in my offer letter. Um, so I joined there June of 1998 so that's that's effectively three years after I, uh, let's see, 94, 98. So four years after leaving, after um, graduating from my MBA. And in August, the CIO, she said to me, I hired you 
um, because you're the smartest tech analyst and we're going to launch a tech fund. Um, and, and then um, we, we launched it in August and it was supposed to be everybody that was doing tech. We had a small cap tech analyst. We had tech analysts with people like working on tech or buying tech companies on all the international funds. So it's kind of like all of us putting our ideas together. A month in, we're top 10% in the world. And she said, what is this? And I said, well, top 10% seems pretty good to me. She goes, no, I hired you because I think you're the smartest tech analyst in the world. And I don't understand why you're not number one. And I said, well, you can't be number one with consensus. She said, fine, you run the fund. And so that was it. So, and then, and then she said, you know, the only thing I want you to do is be number one. And, um, and so I had no restrictions on, I mean, obviously stay within the law. We couldn't, we couldn't invest more than 2% of the portfolio in an, in any IPO and then had to like share that among other people. Um, but I had no turnover restrictions. So I turned over the portfolio 440% that year. Um, yeah. So she basically just, and I'm great. I'm like a, almost like an army person where, you know, if you tell me the one thing I want is number one and you have no restrictions. And that's all I think about. I eat, breathe and sleep thinking about how I become number one, because that's what she said the job is. Um, yeah. So that's basically, so that then that's the end of 98. So that started August 98. And then, and then in 99, it was the number one fund in the world. Yeah, this story is fascinating. I mean, I, I cannot get over the timeline as well. I mean, literally 25, you're training horses, $40 an hour, and six or seven years later. I mean, this story is insane. And, and your ability as well to just seize opportunity. I mean, it, it's just crazy. It's, it's amazing. So I, I apologize, but I was so I was so excited to ask you that. We have to get to your actual courses and what you do and help students. I, I have so many great questions about this as well. Um, it's amazing. Your programs are incredible. I've talked to some of your past students who have so many incredible things to say about all the classes that you've taken. I guess, what was kind of the huge why behind this of creating these courses to help younger students who are in these non-target schools and break into such a hyper-competitive profession like investment banking? Robusta Move was founded from our passion for two of the most simple and amazing things in life, good coffee and good music. Both of these enjoyable aspects of life play a vital role in the bringing together of people. And although we understand that everyone's music taste is different, there's no denying that when it comes to coffee, the difference between a good cup and a bad cup is undeniably blatant. That's why in the spirit of community and coming together, we at Robusta Move have made it our mission to supply our customers with superior coffee that you, your friends, and your family can enjoy. And we'll leave the playlist up to you. Visit robustamove.com and save 20% on your first order with the code VINYL. That's code VINYL, V-I-N-Y-L, to save 20% on your first order at robustamove.com. Robusta Move Coffee. Try it today. I had the opportunity to go to Stanford. In fact, my family has, has a Stanford economics chair. That's called the Sobieski economics chair. So I really had a strong chance to get into Stanford and I had straight A's and all that stuff in, in high school. But my father, my aunt, my uncle, my grandmother and grandfather all went to Stanford. And so I grew up saying, no matter what, I'm not going to Stanford. And then when I, when I was um, riding horses, I said, I want to, when I was in high school riding horses, I said, I, I want to um, not be in LA. I just want to be away from my parents a little bit and have a little independence. And I want to go in the junior Olympics. And so I said to my trainer, what trainer could take me to the junior Olympics? And she said, Lori Falvo in San Diego. And so I applied to UCSD. And, um, and it was great. And so that's my alma mater. When I came, when I retired or left Wall Street, kind of for the first time, I got back in and managed more money later. But when I left New York for California, I connected with UCSD and said, I would love to work with students. I love teaching. I've been, I have taught macroeconomics, business economics. I've taught as a TA. And then I've taught horse riding 
both in English and in German, by the way, um, for my whole life. I've taught horse riding. I think the first time I started teaching, I was 14 years old and my mother was freaked out about riding this course. And I said, I'll get you through it. So I just love teaching. And um, so I, so I went and presented at a, at a, it's called UIS. It's a conference at UCSD. And I presented there and some students came up afterwards. It was a cocktail party. And one student, Greg Magadini, he came up to me and said, hey, I've got this Japanese yen trade. I want to, you know, see what you think and et cetera. We started talking and I said, hey, if you want to continue this conversation, I'm not willing to do any work, but if you bring together all these a bunch of students, we can have an investment club. And it turned out that at UCSD, they, um, they don't have a business major because a lot of the business professors are far more expensive than economics professors. And students were having problems breaking into Wall Street, not because they weren't smart, but because they didn't speak the lingo. And they were coming in very school-like, talking about supply and demand, the things you'd learn in economics. And I, and I thought if we just have these conversations and um, you know, then we could, really, we could really change the number of students. And so what I would do is we'd all meet and I would just have a random, well, not so random, but a list of tickers I was interested in and then randomly hand them out to the students. They didn't get to pick. I randomly hand them out to the students. And then two weeks later, they would have to do an investment pitch. And if they hadn't had prepared an investment pitch, they were not welcome to come to the meeting. So it was, it was pretty harsh. And um, that quadrupled the number of students breaking into Wall Street the next year. And my mentees have been Forbes 30 under 30, Greg Magadini I was talking about, retired at 29. Now he's the CEO of his own company, which is called Genesis Volatility. Another student was blue collar, um, all the way football player. And he is now um, managing money at Apollo Global, which is one of the hardest, most exclusive private equity firms to get into. So it, it really took off and I love doing it. And I noticed two things. One is it's a little bit hard to recruit the students that want to do it because you've got to keep telling everybody, okay, you're doing this. You know, I'm, I'm do, I have this available to you. And number two, I wanted the students to figure out how to pick stocks and pitch stocks and find their own voice. But at the same time, there are a lot of basics that I could share with them to have them have a, a historical perspective of someone that's been in the industry for five years. For instance, Tommy, I kept Tommy Wilson, who's now at Apollo. I just really pushed him. His dad was in the airline industry and I pushed him to think about the basic second derivatives of orders between Airbus and Boeing and what was happening with the various executives in the different airlines and where were their loyalties and when would when would Airbus start order getting more orders and Boeing go down and just very things that you would things that an analyst five years in working at a hedge fund would work on and I would push them to do all these things and it's quite easy they they get it right away and if they have those, those basics. And so I wanted to codify everything into a course where it's 60,000 words and it's nothing that you could Google on the internet about you know buying a stock or whatever, because you can use that on Google. It's all about my own experience, my wisdom, and the frameworks that I use to think about investing. And that was what was missing in these, in these classes. And then the second thing that's missing is that it's only available to UCSD students. So now I'm going much broader and we're able to offer it to, you know, to people in non-target schools across the country. Yeah, I love the message behind it and how, again, you're helping students from these non-target schools break into this hyper-competitive profession, which is insanely, incredibly difficult to do. I'm interested, Emmy, like when it comes to like with the students and your mentees that you've worked with, like when it comes to like the mindset piece of being able to like, you know, conceptualize or believe that it's just possible to break into such a hyper-competitive profession like that. What have you examined as you've gone through this course? I mean, is there like a mindset shift that 
students have to go to to achieve to attain that level of success. Yeah, and it, it's a lot of fun. So I had, um, and some of them make a bigger shift than others. Some of them are already like, this is what I'm going to do. Um, so I have two examples, Greg Magadini. So I would have hedge fund billionaires and things like that come to our investment meetings, right? And, and give them the exposure to that. And so, um, so there was one and I would, when we would have a guest, I would have each student say what year they're in and what their goal is. Um, and their name, of course. And so Greg, Greg Magadini said, you know, I'm a junior and I want to be a professional trader and uh, institutional trader. And this hedge fund billionaire says, there's no way that you're gonna do that. Nobody would hire a trader straight out of college. And so he leaves and we're all finishing up. And I said, Greg, this is a great lesson for you that even one of the smartest men that I've ever worked for billionaire can be wrong. There is no reason you can't do that. And he ended up getting an offer from a bulge bracket firm. This was a transfer student who was focused, who was in community college focused on boxing. And he ended up transferring to UCSD and getting an offer from a bulge bracket firm, which he turned down and getting a different offer as an institutional trader and then retiring at the age of 29 by investing in cryptocurrency. So, you know, super successful. My other example was someone that did have a major mindset shift. He had, he was really on the way to going to Yale and then he had a football injury and basically his backup school was UCSD. So he was upset that he was there and also thinking, you know, I should have hedged my bet, right? I should have hedged my bet with something that's in between Yale and UCSD. And so he says to me, I said, what are you thinking about for career? And this is the same guy that I was talking about that was doing like hedge fund level work. And he said, well, you know, I'm thinking to apply to management consulting because there's more jobs, it's safer, that's really the way to go. And I said, that's a waste of your time. I said, I said you can absolutely focus 100% of your energy on Wall Street because I know you'll make it. I absolutely know you'll make it. And so that, and, and obviously I'm not, there was another student there who was trying to do stock pitches all the time and it just wasn't sticking. And I said to her, I think you should look for a different career. So it's not that I'm a cheerleader for everybody. I'm very reasonable with them, but a lot of people underestimate their power. And so I default to, to finding their gems, their hidden gems, and then really amplifying that for them and for others. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's kind of like, I can be a little bit of a spark, but they have to do all the work. Yeah, it makes total sense. And I truly believe that inside of all of us, we have the potential to accomplish anything, no matter where we came from or what school we went to, which is why I love this, what you're doing so much. It is such an incredible thing. This is crazy. Greg's story is, I mean, amazing. That is absolutely, you know, I'd love to share that with more people. It's so crazy. Um, one of your blog posts that I wanted to ask a quick question on, it was my favorite blog post. So it's, it's the one where you depict all the four billionaires that you've worked with worked for and worked with over your career, which I just found so intriguing how you were able to pick lessons learned from each. Just for the audience, Andy, if you could maybe like summarize two or three key points of some of the incredible people that you've worked for and worked with in your network um, that you've learned over your career. I, I, it, that's great that you bring it up. I feel anytime I reflect on my career, the thing that I notice is how lucky I have been to work with brilliant, brilliant people. And even Mike Milken was the first billionaire I worked for. And at the time I didn't interview well. I started interviewing much better once I had a, once I had a number one fund. <laughs> Actually, even before that, because I had a track record and then I could say, look, I can do this. So anyway, um, so Mike, Mike Milken, so each of them is a different personality, which is also fascinating. It's not like there's one way to make money or there's one type of person you got to be. Um, so the, the fun story about Mike Milken is he was going to debate Merton Miller 
on whether financial markets are efficient. And Merton Miller was a Nobel laureate that it's called the um, Modigliani-Miller rule about effectively capital structure doesn't matter and you can have all debt or all equity or any portion and the valuation of the firm should be the same. And so Milken says to me, well, you know, I had gotten A pluses in all of those agency and types of courses that would be useful for him. And he says, look, I, I have all of the background of the practical stuff, but I want to make sure for this debate that I've got all the theoretical stuff down too, so I can crush this guy. <laughs> and so I taught him effectively my entire MBA of the theoretical capital structure and things like that, corporate finance, eight hours a day for five days straight. So 40 hours. And I would teach and then he would stand up and pace and go, so what I'm hearing is da, 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 da. And then I would say, no, yes, no. And so that's a brilliant thing to be able to do because often we think that our audience heard us or our audience thinks they heard us. So it's great. It seems like such a basic thing, but this is how Mike Milken made sure that he really learned from me and from others is he would check in and say, is this what I heard? And then I could clarify and then he'd do it again until he and I were 100% agreeing and then we'd move on. So that's a great way to, for anyone to learn to communicate. The second thing I learned from Mike Milken as he said, it was funny. So he said, Emmy, when you're young, the, the biggest thing that you can do to move ahead faster is to gain historical perspective. And so I read all of these books on technology, technology companies. It was like called Computer Wars and the history of IBM. And I would come in and talk to these management teams and I would, I would be like, oh yeah, I read about you here. And oh yeah, I know what you did there. And I know that you used to be in DRAM and now you're in semi, you know, now you're in something else. And so I really, it gave me a tremendous advantage. And then I run into him in 2007 at a conference. And I said, Mike, that was so helpful. What you told me about historical perspective, it moved me ahead so much faster. I could, you know, I just knew what was happening in these industries. And he said, oh, whatever, forget about that. He goes, these companies out here have so much debt. He goes, debt's the problem. Go look at all the debt. And I mean, it was completely prescient because then the 2008 crisis happened, which was all about debt. So that was my first billionaire. Um, he, was, he was incredible. I then, when I worked at Nicholas Applegate, uh, Art Nicholas, he made his money completely differently. Milken, Mil so Milken, to back up one second, the way that Milken made his money was that he would effectively use its other people's money, OPM, that's the key. So he would do an LBO, a leverage buyout of a company, and this is because uh, a lot of this was happening in the 80s because in the 60, in the 1950, the government came out and said, you can't buy companies that are kind of comparable to you. So, so all these conglomerates got created where people are buying a bunch of stuff that is all the businesses they don't know anything about, just total disaster. And so then there were all these efficiencies, all these kind of bloated companies and managements running it that don't even understand the companies that they're running. And, um, and so that was a great opportunity to buy these, clean them up, um, pare them down, get them efficient and either IPO them or sell them or sell off the pieces. Um, and so that's what the whole LBO movement was. But what Milken would do is to do this LBO I mean, not everybody has like, you know, 4 billion hanging around to buy these conglomerates. And so he would use debt and basically create a bunch of debt to do the LBO. He would sell the debt to a bunch of institutional investors. He would, he did a lot of illegal things like pressuring them to, he'd say, well, I won't give you access to the next hot deal unless you buy this crap deal and things like that. But he got it done. And then if you lever something up, just like real estate, if you lever something up 95% and then the, you have that 5% slice on the top, 
and then the thing say goes up 30%, you've made six X on your money because your 5% has gone to, well, you've made more than that seven X, but your 5% has gone to 35%. So he would then the executives of the LBO and then his personal family trusts would buy the equity. <laughs> so he would force a debt on everybody <laughs> And then put the, so that's how he became a billionaire, um, <laughs> even, even with going to jail for years. Um, so that's the number one. My number two was completely the, I mean, that's a bunch of smart things and figuring all this out. Art Nicholas, first of all, he just has an instinct for markets, but his whole thesis was buy things that are going up after they start going up. And anything that starts going down, don't own it. And, and this fueled the entire of Nicholas Applegate was sustainability, timing, and a catalyst. That's what you look for in every single stock. And I look for that now. And, but if you think about that, you get in at the right time, there's sustainability of the catalyst, the positive catalyst that you see, and it goes up. So even the 2000 bust, now they, they drifted away from their strategy. So it really hurt them, the 2000 bust. But in the 2000 bust, there were plenty of sectors like consumer staples that went up very, and energy that went up very strongly. So if he had truly stuck with what he said, he would have even made money in the 2000 bust. But needless to say, um, he sold Nicholas Applegate right at the top for, so at the highest revenue level and the highest, highest uh, multiple on revenues that had ever been seen in the industry. He also does the same thing with real estate. He tends to get out right at the top. He's, he's really amazing. And, and so that's such a simple thing. So that most of the portfolio managers at Nicholas Applegate would just go home on a, on a Sunday and go through books of charts. Imagine how much easier that is than getting to know every like fundamental thing about a company. And they mix it now, they mix it more now. And I was brought into Nicholas Applegate to bring more fundamental anal analysis in. But you know, this man became a billionaire literally by building a company that was all around buying and owning things that go up. I mean, very, very simple. Um, the next billionaire I worked for, brilliant, Glenn Doshay. And he ran a super secretive hedge fund. And his strategy was that there are, to really, really know your company and know those executives to the point where if you're talking to five executives from each of your, say, 300 companies that you, that you cover, and if you're talking to them regularly, you know what makes them tick. And so you can predict if they're going to want to merge with somebody and with no inside information, completely just, you just get to know the pulse of these people and you know exactly like how they walk and how they talk and what their, what their normal mood is so that you can go to any conference and go, oh, their mood ticked down by 5%. And then you can ask them if anything's going on in their family. So you're not breaking the law, but you're just, you know, these people better than anybody knows them. And, um, and then you use that to own the companies that you really think are the highest quality management um, and that are going to do great in the long run. And you own them early and you own them for a long time. And then you, you short the ones that are lower quality management, lower quality, um, lower quality business models. And this worked every year so that every year he had, so he ran a true hedge fund, not kind of, you know, a few shorts in order to collect your two and 20 fee, but a true like 50, you know, 50% short, 50% long type of a thing. So he ran a true hedge fund and every single year his short portfolio was profitable and his long portfolio was profitable separately. They stood on their own, um, except 1999, everything went up so much. The short portfolio was slightly at a loss. And um, so that strategy worked really well in 2000 and 2001, what was interesting is that the 
the high quality companies had gone up by so much that, and the low quality companies were so cheap that then the high quality companies were declining and the low quality companies were kind of going up. So we were losing money both ways for a little while there, which was very painful. So any strategy can have, like it can, you can overextend one way or the other. And I learned that from him and I learned, oh, I learned a really interesting trick from him. He required that each analyst, which I thought was like a benefit, each analyst visit companies with him two weeks out of each quarter. Which I just loved it. That was my favorite time. We'd go to these, and he would ask these crazy questions. You know, management teams would either love him or hate him. It was so much fun, so entertaining. And um, so we'd be in these meetings, and I'd take notes. So he comes out and he says, "Look, you're smart. You've got a good memory. There's no reason to take notes." said, if you take notes, you are actually signaling to the other person that what they just said is important and they may not know that. So he said, if you have to write something down during a meeting, take their business card, flip it over, put it on your, put it on your, um, on your leg underneath the desk and just jot something down. And then don't jot it down when they say the thing that you really think is important, jot it down a little bit later. So you don't even signal, they don't know that they gave you something that, that you wanted. Um, and I think that's an incredible, an incredible tip for any kind of high stakes negotiations, anything like that. So that was, that was Glenn Doshay, Br brilliant, brilliant man. I've so many stories about him. Just uh, my girlfriend that, that got me the job with, with him said, the only problem with working for Glenn is after you've worked for Glenn, nobody else will come close. And he was brilliant. He pushed me. I learned a tremendous amount from him and he was so loyal. I, I, I know my car was stranded in the Denver airport and I had to drive to Wyoming in, in snow. And when he learned about that, he said, Emmy, that's crazy. You should have called me. I would have sent a plane for you. I mean, who sends a plane for someone? But that's, that's his level of generosity. And just such, such an amazing man. And then, um, and then the fourth billionaire I worked for was a crypto billionaire who's actually never had a job. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, he was an online professional poker player and he paid his way through college doing that and continued to do that and had the experience of having uh, some, he was on some on online exchange with poker and had his money taken, had his money grabbed. And he was like, I don't think I want that to happen again. You know, he was, so he got more interested in Bitcoin in terms of self-sovereignty of your own finances. Then he would also, he lives in Vegas, he would go on the strip and he would play poker and maybe he would need to pull out more cash. And he didn't want to pay the fees that the, that the casinos were charging. He wanted to just pull it out of an ATM, but the ATMs have these limits. So he came up with this idea, what if I created a Bitcoin ATM? Because then the Bitcoin is truly mine. So you don't have to have this thing with the interface with the bank. Does he really have the money? Are there any outstanding checks? All this stuff. It's like that Bitcoin is mine. And so as long as there's enough money in the Bitcoin ATM, you can pull it out. There's no limits. So now he has, so he put his first Bitcoin ATM on the strip, I think, so that he could play poker <laughs> and have unlimited funds. But, but it's now the, the second largest Bitcoin network and it's cryptocurrency network in the country. Um, where you can go and it's and it's one of the ones that's two sided, where um, where you can um, go go and you can sell your Bitcoin or you can buy Bitcoin with you can buy Bitcoin with cash or you can or you can sell your Bitcoin for cash, and you just have to call ahead if like if you're gonna say you're gonna do a fifty thousand dollar transaction, then you you basically have to look online and see which ATMs would have would have that availability for you. Um, yeah, so that, that was really cool. And what I learned from him, I mean, first of all, he, he just keeps pushing on 
getting regulatory approval, moving state to state. He's just constantly pushing forward um, as a businessman. And most of my others I worked for were managing money. So this was an opportunity to think about how to run a business. And um, I think he's only like 36 years old. Anyway, he's just brilliant. Um, and the, then the second thing was he, he was doing with the firm quite a lot in, in DeFi, decentralized finance. And so understanding how those worlds work and watching, getting to watch and see his reactions when you have these big downdrafts in Ethereum, which is then your reserve currency. It's the thing you're staking in a DeFi pool and watching these big swings and what happens to markets and getting the opportunity to try to hedge some of those out using options. And I was trading OTC options uh, on Bitcoin, Bitcoin options over OTC. Um, so it was, it was a great opportunity to live at the cutting edge and, and to see someone that like that so young that it, that had never had a job and uh, just, just built this huge network based on his own needs at the time. Yeah, these stories are absolutely incredible. And it's just like, that is my all time favorite article that you've read. And I was just like, man, there's so many incredible nuggets in there and just lessons learned of working with these incredibly amazing people from Mike Milken. I love what you said in the beginning. He, he went to camp to uh, Glenn O'Shea. It's just like amazing what you've done. Um, getting ready to wrap up here, Emmy, I just had one last question. I mean, looking back on just the decades, whether it's the wealth management or the incredible coaching that you're doing today, Man, if you could just pick one or two things that were just the biggest kind of implementers of your success or the biggest catalyst that helped you along the way to where you are today. I'm curious, just looking back on the last couple of decades, what would that be? So number one is that advice by that guy at Roger Engelman, which is go where people don't want to go. And I've given this advice a lot of time, go into bonds when everyone wants to go into equities because there's more inefficiencies. It's not as sexy, but you're going to make more money and you're going to move up. And Tommy Wilson did that and it paid off in spades. He's at Apollo. So go places where there's where they're paying a little bit less and you have the chance to advance, to manage people, to manage money, to build your track record faster. There's, there's, as Peter Thiel says, there's no reason to go through the same steps everybody else does. You can skip some steps. So that's, for me, that's a big thing. And then, and then number two, what Glenn used to say is, we're so lucky, we're making so much money, but somebody's got to do it. And that's what Alyssa Garrett, I just published a new YouTube video and I said, how did you get into Harvard Business School? And she said, they have to let somebody in. So have more confidence in yourself and, and believe that you can do it because somebody's, somebody's going to get that job. Somebody's going to do it. it. It might be you. I never thought I'd run the number one fund in the world, but somebody's got to be number one. So that's, those are the two big lessons. Yeah, I love that. And I just love the story of, you know, you can start, it doesn't matter where you start, it's where you finish. And it's so true with the right systems and processes, anybody can be number one. And I just, your courses, it's incredible. I mean, everything that you're doing for students today is amazing. And I can't thank you enough for coming on. I want people who listen to follow up with you and to follow up with these courses and some of your content. Where can people find you at after the show? I mean, what platforms are you on? How can people learn more about breaking into investment banking? So the, there's now a landing page website called breaking into, it's called break into investment banking. So break into investment banking is now a landing page. So you can go there to .com. And then you can find me on LinkedIn, Twitter, YouTube, and, um, and, and Facebook. So I'm pretty much everywhere. I'm much harder to find on Facebook. I'm, I don't respond to a lot. I don't respond as well on Facebook. So I would say, if you really want to reach me, DM me on Twitter is the best way to reach me. And you can go on to breaking, break into investment banking and sign up for my newsletter. And there you can just directly reply to me. When the, when the email comes to you from my newsletter, you could directly reply. I reply to all of those as well. 
I mean, it was incredible. Your wealth of knowledge is just amazing. And to interview who I, who is one of the best or one of the greatest wealth managers that the world has ever seen and stock figures. It, it was an absolute privilege today. This is going to add so much value to my audience. And again, what you are doing for students and for everyone out there is just life-changing and world-changing. I can't thank you enough for coming on Wealth Science. Thank you so much for having me. You gave a great interview. I enjoyed it a lot. Awesome. Thank you, Emmy. Thanks. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Wealth Science Podcast. Take some time to subscribe and leave us a review. It really is the basis that helps us continue to bring on amazing guests each week. We have another incredible story to share next week, and I'm certain it's going to add value to this community. Please do not hesitate to reach out if there's anything I can do to help you in your journey of attaining financial freedom. Thank you again for listening, and we will see you next week.